Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs, and today we have to talk to Amos Winter. Amos is an assistant professor in the Department of Mechanical Engineering at MIT, and he's in there he's the director of the Global Engineering and Research Lab. And essentially he comes up with innovative ideas and designs for developing countries, which is probably a little too simply put, but we'll get into it more. So his current projects are quite fascinating, so get ready for these, the prosthetic knee, prosthetic foot, a solar-powered desalination system, a drip irrigation system, turbocharged engines, and small-scale tractors. And so remember, he's building these technologies to be affordable and usable across the world. So Amos received his Ph.D. in mechanical engineering in 2010 from MIT, and he's won a number of awards, especially for his innovative wheelchair that he gave a TED Talk on, which is a, it's a great talk, which we'll, we'll post a link to. So let's get into it. So Amos, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Yes, definitely. And so you know, before we get into it, can you kind of give us your background? And I, I, I'm, I'm curious how you became interested in developing products or and uh, equipment for the rest of the world. Yeah, well, I, I'm trained as a mechanical engineer through and through. Uh, all my degrees are in mechanical engineering. And uh, I got interested in developing world technology while I was in graduate school. Uh, I was dating a woman at the time who was doing a year-long fellowship in Tanzania. Uh, the summer after I finished my master's, I wanted to go spend that with her in Tanzania. And I was willing to do really anything technology-related. I didn't really care, uh, just so long as it was in Tanzania. And <laughs> I, I fell into this situation where uh, I was doing a wheelchair assessment for a group in the U.S., uh, World One Wheelchair International, uh, which designs wheelchairs for developing countries, and an organization in Tanzania uh, that goes by the acronym TAPCOT, and I can't remember what that stands for, but it's, a, it's an orthopedist training program where they taught people how to make wheelchairs and set up their own workshops. And so what those organizations wanted was an assessment of how well existing technology was meeting people's needs, and what sort of technology was out there in the market space. So I spent a summer interviewing wheelchair users and wheelchair manufacturers and disability advocacy groups trying to get a lay of the land. And what came out of that was an insight into um, that there was a, a gap in the technology space particularly for people who lived in rural areas of developing countries. So if you look, you know, globally, there's about 60 million, 40, 60 million people who need a wheelchair but don't have one. And about 70% of those people are going to live in rural areas of developing countries. And if you try to imagine going maybe two miles a day from your house to school or your job using a regular conventional wheelchair on like a rough road or even like a footpath, it's it's incredibly arduous and difficult, and, and most people wouldn't physically be able to do it. So w during that first summer, I started seeing the need for this mobility aid that could go long distances, fast and efficiently on rough terrain, and be used small and uh, used indoors and be small enough like a, a normal wheelchair. 
uh, and that, that product didn't exist yet. And those requirements eventually led to the creation of the leveraged freedom chair, which is the, the lever powered off-road wheelchair that I, I talk about in the Ted talk that you mentioned in the intro. And, uh, everybody should see this wheelchair. I mean, it's, yeah, the, you mentioned the, the levers in the name, like that's quite ingenious. And so that's why I was really curious to interview. Um, and, I don't know if we don't have to talk about that project. I'm curious kind of what you're working on now too. And everyone can go watch the Ted talk. Um, but no, that's a really good, uh, background for everyone. And, uh, so, and we can talk about that project unless you have another kind of one of your favorite projects you're working on now that we could talk about and kind of dive into the details would be, uh, interesting. Sure. Yeah. You know, before we do that, I'll add a little bit more yeah. about how I came to running a research group that focuses on, Technologies for Developing and Emerging Markets. So my background and my training uh, through undergrad and graduate school was primarily in, I would say, more conventional engineering science. Uh, I focused on machine design, and I uh, my PhD was making a, a robotic system that could dig into underwater soils uh, using very little energy and, and, and very quickly. And so, you know, I got this, I think, more conventional technology research experience in my PhD. And then on the side, throughout grad school, I was working on wheelchair technology in developing countries. And I got a lot of experience working on the ground, partnering with stakeholders, testing prototypes and context. And so when I applied for my job, the, the vision that I pitched was, what if we ran a hardcore engineering science research group that worked in developing and emerging markets to create technologies for that space. And as far as the motivation for doing this, if you look throughout the developing world, there's, there's still problems related to technology like clean water and sanitation and maternal health that affect millions to billions of people, often in life or death ways, and they're still not solved. And so what better foundation could you ask for for research in making an impact with that research? And so that, that's what created the, the core tenets of my, my research group. And, and what we do is a lot of socioeconomic and technical detective work in developing and emerging markets to understand people's needs, understand the needs for new technologies. And then we reflect on those findings from an engineering perspective use engineering science and research in order to create the high-performance, low-cost technologies that are demanded by emerging markets. And what we also try to do is keep an eye on what if we created that high-performance, low-cost solution? What would that look like back in a wealthy country? Could we disrupt wealthy markets with these solutions? So we try, even though we're motivated and, and targeted on poor countries, we really try to keep an eye on the global market opportunities for disseminating our technology. Mm, that's a good way to look at it. And uh, and so do you have a, so a current project that you're especially interested in? Well, I guess you're excited about all of them, but is there one that you want to talk about now? Or we can talk about the, the wheelchair one too. Well, I think, you know, let's let's take our drip irrigation okay. technology. Uh, I think that's a good example of what we do in our group. So 
about four years ago, we started working with uh, the second largest drip irrigation company in the world uh, called Jane Irrigation. They're based in India. And uh, if, if you're not familiar with drip irrigation, what it is is a means of watering plants where you just drip out the exact amount of water the plant needs. So you minimize water loss to evaporation in drainage. And by doing this, you can, you can reduce water consumption by about 60% compared to conventional irrigation methods of, of just flooding the, the, the field between the rows. Um, so, you know, this technology has a great potential for water savings, which is particularly important in a country like India, which is quickly running out of water. And as far as like a development motivation, international development, um, irrigating land is one of the most high impact interventions you can do with poor subsistence farmers in the developing world because they can grow more crops and get more money and, and rise out of poverty. And there's about a half billion farms around the developing world that farm just a, a few acres and, and, and live off uh, subsistence farming. So, you know, we started talking to Jane about this challenge and, you know, they're going after it both for the humanitarian impact, but also because of the incredibly huge market potential when you're trying to engage half a billion current non-consumers, right? Huge, huge untapped market. So what I had to do was was start down this detective process of understanding, okay, Jane, you've shown us this amazing opportunity. Why can't you achieve it? What are the barriers in your way? And so as we dug into this, we found that when when you try to engage these poor farmers, most of them live off the electrical grid. And when you try to make drip irrigation work off the grid, it becomes exorbitantly expensive. About $3,000 per acre is, is what the capital cost is. And in, in, you know, we're trying to target farmers that make a few hundred dollars a year. So working with Jane, I, I understood from a physics and engineering perspective, what drives that capital cost is the amount of power you need to pump the water through the system. And what determines the pumping power is the pressure required to uh, that is applied to the drip emitters in order for them to emit the correct flow rate of water. So you get a uniform distribution of water in the field. So by diving into the physics and getting this perspective of the physics, we understood that, boy, if we could cut the pressure required on the dripper, we could proportionally then cut the power required. Mm. And it turned out, so so the, the figures are actually, if we could cut the pressure by about 10 times to the dripper, it would cut the overall pressure in the system by half um, because you still have filters and piping and all this stuff that causes pressure drop. That would cut the capital cost in half for an off-grid system. And with Indian government subsidies, uh, depending on where you are in the country, that would cut the, the capital cost of the farmer down to about $300 which would be affordable with a one-and-a-half-year payback period. So this is a nice example of that detective work we do that, you know, we understood the opportunity, we, we understood the physics, and we said, okay, if we can design new drippers that operate at a tenth the pressure but still deliver the correct flow rate of water, that could be a game-changer. And so as we dug into what the engineering theory was that dictates how these drippers behave, it turned out we found that it looks like people had not articulated that those mathematical relationships yet. We, we weren't able to find them in the literature. Jane did not know about them. And these drippers or, or similar flow restriction systems like the drippers have been around since the mid-1940s. 
And so what we did is we, we really dove into the, the rigorous analysis to articulate how the water flows through these things and how they control the water flow. And this was a, a pretty complicated problem, understanding some flexible elements in the drippers that bend under pressure and change the flow rate and restrict the water flow. But we were able to put together this full analytical model of the coupled fluid mechanics and solid mechanics relationships in the dripper. Then what we were able to do with that is dump that into an optimization routine and, you know, with computer simulations, come up with a new dripper architecture that's basically just tweaked from the existing architecture in many slight little ways that operates at about one-seventh or one-eighth the pressure of existing products. and. So with this, with the, these little drippers, these low-pressure drippers, we can about cut in half the capital cost for an off-grid system. And if you're a farmer that, that works on the electrical grid or uses diesel pumping, say you're a farmer in California, it cuts your energy costs in half. And so in the last year, we actually won uh, a large grant from USAID to pilot this technology in Jordan and Morocco starting early next year, as well as develop the full suite of solutions to work with many different crop types and many different farm situations, including off-grid situations. And, and, and that new technology will be piloted about two and a half years from now. Hmm. Interesting. And, and so how, you know, how was the engineering behind that? Because I imagine Jane probably has some uh, pretty smart engineers. You know, why why is your team different, or what makes you guys stand out? Is it because you get right down to the analytical detail, every part and every uh, fl- um, controller and flow system, or how do how do you guys differentiate? I guess. You are correct. Jane does have very smart engineers, and and they're a pleasure to work with. The the types of problems we take on in, in our research group are ones where there currently does not exist the engineering theory hmm. to solve the problem we want to solve. You can't just go look it up in a book. You can't just like slap it into a computer simulation and do it really easily. There's there's just, you know, no engineer in Jane Irrigation has really been taught the theory of how to design these super low pressure drippers because it just doesn't really exist yet. And so that's, that's what creates the research that we do. That, and the research is, is the new engineering knowledge that we are trying to articulate that tells how this technology behaves. And the idea behind research then is that you can disseminate that knowledge and teach the engineering community the new knowledge, and then they can apply it to whatever they're trying to design. So are you guys essentially, with this project, creating the simulation from scratch or how uh, – and putting all the math behind it or how does, how do you, what's your process? Yeah. Yeah. And that, in that example, yep. It was, wow. it was boiling it all the way down to first principles huh. of how the water flows through the dripper and how the pressure applied to the dripper changes the geometry of the flow paths in it in order to change the resistance to fluid flow with increases in pressure. Uh, because these, these drippers self-regulate, they, they can maintain a constant flow rate with variations in pressure. And th- that behavior is particularly important to our applications when we're trying to run the system on very low pressure because we can get upwards of three times different pressure from the drippers that are near the pump, which feel relatively high pressure, 
to the drippers down at the end of the lines, which feel a much lower pressure because of the pressure loss as the water flows through the irrigation line. Will, will these uh, the drip irrigation systems also last longer because of the lower pressure? Um, no, the okay. the pressure is not a limiting factor okay. in the, the life oh, of the and, system. And, and do you see any uh, uses for developed countries for this? Uh, Absolutely, system? yeah, yeah. For, you know, places that are short of water or have uh, issues with power. Um, you know, California, it falls under both those categories. Um, and, and drip irrigation is commercialized globally. Yeah. Um, it was really popularized in Israel in the 1970s. That's when it really got its start. Um, so, yeah, like any any farmer who's using drip irrigation, if they can lower the pressure needed to move the water through the system, they save money on energy for pumping. Interesting. Yeah. And 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 I, I know we're almost out of time. I, I'm curious, you know, you your users are around the around the world. So how do you get kind of that immediate feedback? I guess with this one is more of an engineering problem. Uh I mean they're all engineering problems. With the wheelchair though, it probably would be helpful to kind of have the wheelchair in its environment. But I guess you could just take it out back and try it too. But it, uh No, it yeah. In every project we do, it is imperative that we spend time on the ground, not only with end users, but with the entire chain of stakeholders that represents taking an idea from inception all the way to commercialization in the real world. You know, because if we're not satisfying design requirements of the production guys, of the distribution folks, you know, of the end users, of maybe you know, some some government subsidy scheme or something, we're going to miss the mark. Mm. And time and time again, we find, you know, it really happens every six months when we're in the field. We discover a critical factor behind the problem we're trying to solve that if we missed it, it would have killed the project. Wow. Done. Wow. You know, and we only can ascertain those factors by being there on the ground and talking to to this whole network of stakeholders that is going to ensure the success or failure of the technology we're trying to create. Hmm. And that's part And also I want to add one more thing too that like we in all these projects we never just go at it alone. We we try to partner with the organizations that really know the market, ideally also that are in a position to manufacture and distribute at a large scale. So this example of the drip irrigation project that I gave um Jane Irrigation, our partner, is is an example of such a fantastic partner because they know the market space, they can navigate things like government subsidies, they can manufacture and distribute on an enormous scale. They're a billion-dollar-a-year revenue company. And so what we're coming in with is trying to solve the technical, technological keystone of a very large problem where if we create that little keystone, Jane is in a position to build the rest of the arch with all of their capabilities in order to bring that technology to fruition. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing that differentiates your group from, well, the Jane engineers and everyone else is that, you know, you're, you think about the entire picture, the entire ecosystem that goes into this, which a lot of engineers don't. And so it kind of gives you a leg up on the more traditional, let's say, engineering projects. We try. Yeah. <laughs> and we screw it up all the time. Of course. And, but we try to screw it up as quickly as possible and screw it up in context around the people who know why we screwed it up. And so we have the perspective of why and can fix it. But so how do you even uncover 
all the issues that you don't even know about. It's, 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 I mean, do you have, and this might be get too long of a question, but, uh, you know, how, how do you even know? Cause how do you even know what you don't know? So when you get into something, there's some of these issues just kind of arise in the middle of the project. Have, do you have si- systems now in place where you try to uncover some of this stuff as early as possible, or is this a more kind of hit or miss? All of the above. Okay. We we try to uncover as much as possible as early as possible, but we also always know that we don't know everything, and we're going to miss some things. So my whole group travels to the field at least every six months, oh, wow. and we test stuff. We test prototypes. We get feedback. We do user group uh, or, or um, you know user surveys and focus groups and stuff. Um, and from those interactions, we discover even more information that we may have missed the first time around, but because we're capturing it as we're designing, uh, we can integrate those insights into the design. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Yeah. La- last question for you. I, are you, are there, is there any project that you really are interested in working on now, um, that, you know, that you're kind of thinking about or that you're starting to work on? Is there anything that, uh. I think there's, uh, well, you mean in the future? Yeah, in the future or something now that uh, you're, you've been just kind of started working on, started working on, or maybe your dream project. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll give you a, an extension of a current one. Okay. Um, so one of our current projects is brackish water desalination, um, and our target market is off-grid villages. Um, but we're looking at this in all different contexts, like micro-municipal and home use and disaster response is a future one I want to do. But anyway, in this project, we're trying to make clean water for people who live in rural areas. And we we understand the price point and the performance we have to hit. And what it is is basically making three liters of drinking water per person per day. And uh, the systems we're designing can support about 10,000 people for their drinking water needs. And they cost about uh, uh, I'm sorry, they can support about 3,000 people and they cost about $10,000, right? Wow. Okay. And so, you know, this is a capital cost per person of around $3 per person. And even huh. at that low price point, it is barely affordable. You know, it's, it's a stretch wow. because, you know, a, a small municipality has to front the money to, to create that thing. And it's a, it's a lot cheaper than like trying to do a system for each household, but it's still pretty expensive. And that system is only providing the most valuable water to people, which is the water you have to drink to stay alive. Now, what fascinates me is thinking then about, okay, what if we want to manage and supply the less valuable water, like for bathing, you know, and for cooking and carrying away sanitation waste? How do we do that when we're having to deal with much higher volumes of less valuable water? And how do we do it at a price point where it could be adopted on a massive scale throughout the developing world? Interesting. I love that problem. That is is an interesting problem. Wow. I mean, how do you even get the brackish water to the, the plant? Well, it's pumped out of the ground typically, it or it can okay. come from a okay. municipal supply. But then, but to the other side of your question is how does it get to people's houses? And right now, with drinking water, they come to a central facility where we're making the desalinated water. They fill up jerry cans and they walk them back to their house. If you start thinking about a actual municipal network 
of pipes to deliver water and take away waste, oh my God, that's a that's a mind blowing challenge. And it it's crazy to me to think about and walk through the US and think that every single building I see has a pipe going in with water clean enough to drink and a pipe coming out yeah. that takes away all our waste. And it's all hooked together. And so like how do you you know, probably the solution in, in poor countries is not, you know, copying what we've done here because it's exorbitantly expensive. But how do you provide that same core value to consumers in poor countries when they're incredibly constrained on cost? Hmm. That's a challenge. That's yep. wow. Yeah, you have you have some interesting days, man. I, I love what you guys are doing. Must be a Thanks. must be fun. And I mean, you, you get the. Dual benefit. You have really fun, interesting technical challenges, but then you also uh, get to help the the world, <laughs> and uh, maybe make some money doing it, which is n- not bad too. And that's awesome. And that's an imp- that's an important point, actually. That I don't think uh, benefiting humanity and making money doing it are mutually exclusive. No. And a lot of times, I see people view uh, programs to help the developing world as only charities. You know, of course, they're poor people. How could they pay for anything? Well, when you talk about the purchasing power of like half a billion farms, yeah, it's a lot of purchasing power. So I think, you know, the more companies and the more entrepreneurs can understand what's the value proposition of these consumers, how can I meet, how can I meet their needs at a price affordable for them? There's enormous economic opportunities as well as enormous opportunities to improve the quality of life of people around the world. Hmm. Oh, that's that's great. You must uh you must get out of bed a smiling, at least some most days. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm very thankful that I get to do what I do. Well, it's well, it's, it's and, so much fun. And it's so impressive that you I mean you set this up, right? The group herself. And uh it's a, it's like uh your own little incubator that uh is growing and growing. So it'll be fun to uh follow you and see what else you uh build over the years cool thank you and, yeah definitely and uh you must definitely appreciate your time and your thoughts and love what you're doing so uh keep at it and uh I'll, I'll check in once in a while and uh thanks everyone for listening to another episode of flyover labs as always i greatly appreciate it and we'll see you next time thanks amos thanks everyone great thank Bye. you dave take care